So when this episode comes out, it's going to be November 3rd, which is the election day for the United States. Going off of our last episode, when we talked about the impact of the U.S. elections around the world, we thought it would be a great idea to finally invite somebody onto the podcast and actually talk to someone who is living through the elections and has it as part of their day to day. Hi friends, my name is Nadine and my name is Thadini and welcome to You Know What I Mean. Okay, before before we get into it, I'm super excited to obviously have both of you. You're both my favorite people in the <laughs> world and I get to hang out with you at the same time virtually. So, swag. Um, but I'm going to let Rashav introduce himself. Um, but why I guess we wanted to really have you as Nadine already said, and for whoever is listening is because you do a lot of work within politics. Like you really take like an active role and you like mobilize and, um, not only are you passionate about it, but I feel like you give it a lot of thought and, um, are somebody who's living in it. And so it's obviously very different to have that versus have us who are like, living in it in like a different sense. So that's like really why we wanted to have you here today and every day, but today. Um, So yeah, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do and what's up with you? Um, Thanks for the introduction to both of you. I'm really uh, excited to be on this amazing podcast. I am such a huge fan. Um, You guys do such this is one of the most professional podcasts ever. Um, we didn't pay him to say this. Yeah, not sponsored, everyone. Massive man. Um, but like a little bit about myself. I'm currently a law student um, <laughs> at Syracuse University in upstate New York. Uh, I'm in my last year of that. Um, and a little bit in before before I came to law school, I was working in politics. I was working on a congressional campaign in the district that I was born and brought up in. Um, so that's New York's 12th congressional district, uh, where I was working on a campaign for a candidate called Suraj Patel, and he was running against uh, Carolyn Maloney, who is um, a 30-year incumbent. Uh, for the Democrats in the House of Representatives in Congress. Um, So it was a Democratic primary um, and it was great. It was a great experience. So that was in 2018. Um, Before then, in 2017, I was resettling refugees for six months and um, that was an amazing experience. I I really got to meet a a bunch of great families uh, who I will never forget. And before that, I graduated from McGill in Montreal, where I met Tarani. So, yes, that is a Here little a little bit about me. Yes. How did you um, get involved with the 2020 elections? Because I know that Tarini said that you're volunteering. Yeah. So I obviously like being in school. I haven't had uh, as much of a chance to be as involved as I would like, but. Um, there are so many volunteering opportunities. So I've been trying to find time most weeks to phone bank, text bank for different Senate candidates that are running across the country, uh, Democratic Senate candidates running across the country. And um, 
some of the other stuff I've been doing in the last two or three weeks has been some voter protection work. Um, so with the, there's an organization uh, that Stacey Abrams, who ran for um, governor of Georgia runs, it's called Fair Fight. And they do some amazing work uh, in terms of voting rights and voter protection. So some of the volunteer stuff that law students have been doing across the country for them is um, documenting voter stories. So voters who have had their absentee ballots turned away or who haven't received their absentee ballots or who have had some kind of issue when they've gone to the drop box, um, they report those experiences and then um, law students kind of reach out to them and figure out what's going on and, and see what's going on in terms of the state constitutions and how that works so yeah um that's basically what i've been doing in terms of 2020 uh, other than just like freaking out about it every day of my life forever. you and me both i feel like i've been talking to every single person i know about the u.s elections and um i don't know if trini told you this but my sisters are american and they uh, they were born in michigan so they voted in the michigan election which wow. is one of the key states and so i've been on it with them, um, I think to the point where they are sick of me. So yeah, it is it is really crazy as we record this, just thinking that in two days, like knowing that we're not gonna know the results right away, but in two days, we're gonna find out how much, whether or not all this work will have been yeah. to use or, or what. So it's very, very scary actually. No, yeah. absolutely. No, it's, I think, we were, our last episode, so our episode last week was about sort of how we are, you know, removed in whatever fashion that we are, like me and Nadine, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, how it's affected us and how the U.S. elections is actually something that's not an isolated election to the U.S., but it plays such a role on, like, the global stage. And so being in the U.S., how how like I, I mean you hear a lot about riots and protests and whatever but like you like how do you feel like how how do you feel what's going on yeah so I'm dead I feel like like a CNN reporter I'm like and now <laughs> off to you like how is it on this it back yeah you guys you guys could be honestly like <laughs> special election reporters um yeah honestly I mean it's Every year of the last four years, I guess, has felt like a lifetime for so many people. Uh, and for me, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, you know, I am very fortunate um, in a lot of ways. But personally, like, the endless news cycle is really just exhausting. It's, uh, it's very tough to just kind of, like, wake up every day and not know what this president is going to do or... Um, what the people around him are going to do. And as the years kind of go by, have gone by, you can really tell that American institutions are not withstanding this. Like they, they cannot handle what's going on right now. Um, it is scary to think about the fact that um, the Republicans have effectively forced in three Supreme Court justices, completely tipping the balance of the court. And not only that, um, they talk a lot about what Democrats are going to do if Joe Biden wins, which would be hopefully rebalancing the court. Um, and an accusation that gets like leveled at them all the time is like, 
they're going to pack the courts and like swing it in their favor. But the thing is, is that Republicans have been packing the judiciary at every single level in the United States. Um, and in terms of how it impacts my well-being, I think it's just freaking out knowing that um, all of our rights are subject to change. If you're marginalized in any way in this country, you're, um, you are at risk of being disenfranchised. And, and that's pretty scary. And on another level, on like just like a very everyday level, the coronavirus has really ripped the curtain on, away on um, like the deep decay in this country. Like, so for example, all of us have family in different parts of the world. If anything happens, you really cannot go there. Yeah. You cannot actually travel. You can't move freely. We're all like stuck in our homes. Um, it's just a really unnerving situation for everybody. Um, and that's what it has been for the last four years. Just, it gets worse. You mentioned um, how the Republican Party is taking steps to make sure that they are just not like, not just packing the court themselves with their own um, justices, but going through every level of government and trying to tip the scale towards their favor. Because yeah. I, I was telling Trevini that I think something that Trump has done really well is that he's actually exposed that the American system is very fragile. And yeah. all it takes is somebody like him or that ideology to completely tear it apart. Do you, what do you think is the biggest threat of like Trumpism? So that far right extremism that we're seeing now, especially in the Republican Party. Yeah, so that's, um, when we're talking about Trumpism, it's really, it's a difficult question just because Trumpism isn't even new. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Trumpism is, I think the most dangerous thing about it is how pervasive it is across the world right now. Yeah. Um, like tr far right ideologies are in the ascendancy. Um, that's in the US, in Brazil, in Austria, in the UK, like Brexit came before Trump. Brexit was like the first kind of uh, rock that fell in 2016. And I think the most dangerous thing about Trumpism is the way in which it can create, have that domino effect. Um, and you guys talked about that on your last podcast, when something happens here, the reverberations are felt all over the world. And like this very specific right-wing ideology that we see in the U S and in other places is it's like relentless. Mm -hmm. um, it is uncompromising. It's relentless. And it's just, it's a lot of it is about white grievance and white nativism. And a lot of people don't like hearing that, but it's about marginalizing everybody that is the other. And that is scary because they like the Republicans have shown that they will go to any and every length to make sure that they execute on that ideology. Yeah. I think something that we, you know, we're discussing and I feel like we all sort of have thought about is just the fact that a lot of people like to like to use the argument that oh you know well like before Trump it's not like this ideology didn't exist it's not like people didn't think like this but the scariest part about it is that now you have like representation on such a level and such a scale that it gives almost like an okay for everybody else to do it too so it's not necessarily that other people didn't think about these things 
in the same way that he does, which is scary enough as it is, but it just gives them sort of the okay, like uh, it puts a face to that sort of ideology or thinking or whatever. And Rashav, I don't know if you remember, but when we were at McGill, when he um, got elected, there were Make Canada Great Again posters around McGill. I actually think we were the ones, we were together when we saw one. Yeah. So it's, it's just so scary, but it also brings up this other point of sort of, you know, in the 20, the 2016 election, um, a lot of, a lot of the way that Trump won was sort of because of like the secret Trump supporter or like the idea of like a secret Trump supporter, because people may not have openly voiced it because of whatever connotations that brought, but at the end of the day, they were voting for him. And that's really how he became in power. Do you find that it's like, has that changed? Do you think that people are more open about it now? Do you think there's still the same sort of connotation or like, do you, like, is that another sort of threat for a lack of a better word for the upcoming election? I think a lot of the dynamics are still the same uh, in terms of who that voter base is. But um, in terms of like how open they are and how it, that's all kind of anecdotal. So in, in New York, where, where I am, um, Obviously, New York is a very blue state. It's a very diverse state. People are not super, anecdotally, it's like people aren't, I haven't seen that many people who are super open about it. But I think it's important for people to recognize who exactly Trump's voter base is. And in 2016, um, I think a critical part of that base was disaffected voters, voters who had a complete lack of trust in the system. And fundamentally, like, this election is about trust. The last election was about a breakdown of trust. And a lot of those disaffected voters were voters that that decided to cast a ballot for Barack Obama in 2012 and in 2008. But in 2016, voted to blow up the system. I think it'll be interesting to see how many of those voters are still with him. I don't think there's that many just because of how many, how much has happened. Um, but the rest of those voters are fiscal conservatives um, who I would say are typically higher income, perhaps like upper middle class, some middle class. Um, I think maybe those individuals are not as open about what they think because of the environments in which they kind of frequent. And then you have a whole base of people who are plugged into a um, far right news ecosystem. So that's Fox News, that's uh, One America News Network, that's Breitbart, that's Facebook. People who are like lodged into this conspiracy ecosystem that they just keep feeding off of are what you would call typical Trump voters. So I would say people who believe in populism, right? Um, but also people who buy into um, a really grotesque form of nationalism. And yeah, that's what I would say probably would be the breakdown of Trump supporters. I know there's also like a rise in um anti-Trump Republicans and so Republican groups like the Lincoln Project where they're trying to um, mobilize their voter base and basically just give 
a space for people to come and say, yeah, I voted for Trump, but now I'm voting for Biden. Not to not to say that them voting for Trump was okay, but they're trying to get the messaging out that it's okay if you voted for Trump because now you have a chance to redeem yourself and actually vote for someone who's going to protect our country versus go against it, which is what Trump is doing. Um, I also think that, and this was something that they mentioned on Pod Save America, the episode that I listened to today, which was, it's very possible, which is equally as scary, that Trump is able to register new supporters that didn't vote in the 2016 election. So it's also possible that on top of the ones that did vote, there is a group that didn't, that we're also not accounting for. Yeah, I think that there's maybe like a a misconception that it's like Democratic versus Republican, but I think it actually is Democratic versus Republican versus Trump. Like, I don't even know, like it's, I think it goes back to kind of what you were saying about, um, you know, like the Lincoln Project, which is saying, it's fine if you voted for him in 2016, we're not a Democratic like they don't support the Democrat, the Democratic Party, but um, it, it's it's like a difference in ideology, not just between Democratic and Republican, but Democratic, Republican, and then Trump. Um, and I think it's like interesting, Rashad, that you brought up this point about people who are fiscally conservative or um, financially conservative, because I often hear like, oh yeah, well, I hear this actually in Canada a lot too, and it was with the elections that happened in Canada. And they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, conservative, but financially I'm conservative. Mm-hmm. And there, you actually, that's, that's like an oxymoron. Like you can't actually yeah. work like that because what being conservative financially means is that you are also cutting funds to socially funded projects and, you know, communities and infrastructure and that you, you just can't believe in one and also believe in the other because they're inherently against each other. Yeah, they'd be like, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially liberal. I'm like, that doesn't make it, that sentence in itself is contradictory. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes no sense. But I think it's, I think that's sort of the rhetoric that he, you know, that Trump sort of plays off of or, or tries to use to his benefit. And I think that there's so much misinformation. Like, Rajav, I remember you telling me this story. I actually am going to I'm not going to say it properly. And so I'm going to paraphrase it and then I'm going to tell you to tell you, tell it again. But that time that you were traveling somewhere in a bus or something and you were going through like a rural, like, like not like metropolitan cities. And you were like, I understand why people vote for Trump because there's such a lack of access to like education and lack of access to information. And there's no infrastructure. Do you remember the story? So yes. Uh, yeah, no, I do. I, I, so just to, before I, <laughs> Before I before I go into this, before I go into this, so well. she's like, please step in, please. Before I before I go into this story, I just wanted to say about the Lincoln Project. So I think like the Lincoln Project is about appealing to people who maybe are fiscal conservatives or appealing yeah. to people who like believe in old school American like mythology and voted for like their parents voted for Bush and their their grandparents voted for like uh, Eisenhower, something like that. Um, and I think they're trying to make that case. It remains to be seen how successful they will be. Um, yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, people's wallets speak louder than Lincoln Project ads. Um, but it is interesting because there is a wing of the Republican Party, the Lincoln Project, like never Trump people yeah. who are 
probably trying to atone for the party that they created. And in theory, they should know how to message that to these, to, you know, to Republican Space. voters. Yep. But um, Trump really transcends their influence as well. Like he has such a whole stranglehold on the ears of Republican voters that I really wonder how much Democrats are going to cut into disaffected Republicans. Um, but yeah, on the story that she was that we were just talking about, I was on a train on the Amtrak to um, I think to Boston in 2018. And I remember just the train going through some part of Connecticut. And I looked outside the window and I just saw dilapidated like houses, houses that were empty, houses that had people on their porch, um, like injecting themselves with syringes, um, houses that were just like collapsing, cars that were like abandoned and falling apart. And Trump's inauguration speech in January 2017, it was this idea of like American carnage and about how um, globalism and industrialization and automation have like drained all of our cities or drained all of our rural areas and prioritized our cities and prioritized people that live on the coasts and basically sapped the life out of the rest of the country. And until you see what exactly he was talking about, it is difficult to like wrap your head around it. Um, but if you are somebody that is from there, or if you even go through a part of America that's been completely hollowed out by our economic model, you will understand why American carnage is a thing and why his message was so potent and why people are so like, addicted to it they don't want to let go of what he said or what he stands for do you think that also people want to hold on to it because it absolves them of any like of any responsibility or taking responsibility for sort of the state of affairs Abs absolves like the voters you mean um yeah like absolves voters absolves people who kind of feel like they've been i don't want to say like mistreated but that they're mm -hmm. like the they've been caught in the, they are like the collateral that sort of disintegrated. Can someone help me out? I'm like really struggling, but it's like- yeah, they were short- Like they're forgotten. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. And so like, do you think that the reason why it held as much power as it did is because it sort of absolved them of taking any responsibility for their life situation? I think that, that Trump, and, and as Nadine just said, like Trump called them the forgotten men and women of America. And that was his whole selling point, right? Um, and he, I, I don't think people voted for him to absolve, like so that they could kind of like absolve themselves of personal responsibility. I think people voted for him because the truth of the matter is that Democrats hadn't actually been in those places. Democrats hadn't been on the ground doing the work in those places. And unfortunately, the reason that Trump even happened and people voted to blow up the system, when they voted to blow up the system, they didn't vote to blow up just the Democratic Party. They voted to blow up both parties because both parties were captured by 
whatever people see as like private corporate interest. And so I don't think I would say that people voted for him to absolve themselves of any personal responsibility. Um, but I think people voted for him because when people are in a really bad situation and when you're struggling to keep the lights on and you don't have health care and um, you can't, your kids can't even go to college, um, you are going to retreat into the only thing that you know, and that is like blind faith or nationalism. Yeah. And that's what Trump was selling. I also think too, like when he, you have to think about who he was going up against, which was Hillary Clinton, who is the embodiment of institution. And um, she not only had big Wall Street supporters, but she obviously from her husband uh, being in the presidency, she comes with a history of uh, a tie to government and even her role as Secretary of State. So I think people voting for Trump was almost a rejection of that. And then to your point, Rashav, of it just being like, I'm going to blow this up. I'm going to just go the complete opposite direction. I don't want a politician. I want somebody who will actually consider me in their decision making, which is really upsetting because they're still losing. When you think about it at the end of it, after they voted for Trump, he's certainly not thinking of them in the decision that he makes. He's not thinking of anybody in the decision that he makes. And so it will be interesting to see how they end up turning out and voting um, on Tuesday. Because it is just, it is so, I think after 2016, if it's taught the Democratic Party about anything, it's not to take anything for granted and really do the work. And I think that, I think that the future of the Democratic Party after this should really be in question. Like, what is, what is your vision? How are you going to move forward? Because Biden is almost a, I'm, I'm not, and I, I think obviously any candidate other than Trump is a good candidate. Right. Um, Biden is clearly the right choice, but he is a Band-Aid solution. He's yeah. older. Um, like I almost feel like he came out of retirement just to clear up the shit that Trump and the Republican Party have caused. But I'm curious to see what you think about the future of the Democratic Party, if you think there should be a change in leadership or what your general opinion is about the, the leadership right now. Yeah, so that's a really awesome great question and one that i talk about a lot with everybody that is willing to like talk about it um the really interesting thing about the election of joe biden as the democratic nominee at the end of the primaries was that like after 2016 we had so much progressive young diverse energy in the party um, after 2016, people that were, that w did vote Democrat realized this isn't working. This maybe hasn't been working for longer than we thought. And we need to start getting involved at a very like grassroots level. And 2018, the midterms in 2018 were kind of a representation of that, um, where you had like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, uh, Rashida Tlaib, um, you know, 
you had Beto O'Rourke's run in Texas against Ted Cruz for Senate. You had Stacey Abrams running for governor. Um, you had so many amazing, young, diverse candidates that looked like, that looked like America, yeah. really and truly. Um, you had the very first um, Native American congressional representative ever elected in the year 2018. Right, like it was a it was a watershed moment, and then leading off from that and going into the primaries, you had the most impressive lineup of candidates you could possibly have. We had so many great candidates, like you had Bernie Sanders, who ran before in 2016, Elizabeth Warren, who was my personal favorite. Um, people to dread. Yeah. <laughs> Beto, you had all these, all these people, um, Kamala Harris, you had so many people. And at the end of the day, when we settled on Joe Biden, who has been in politics for like 40 something years, you're like, all right, well, is that really the best we can do? Um, and to his credit, since he's, since his election, him and Bernie Sanders, formed a task force and he has moved to the left or in a more progressive direction on a significant number of issues. Um, his climate plan is not the Green New Deal, but it sets out a lot of very ambitious goals. Um, so in terms of what the future of the Democratic Party is, the future of the Democratic Party is not Joe Biden and everyone knows that. I am reluctant to say that I think the future of the Democratic Party should even be Kamala Harris because he clearly picked her as a kind of heir to or heiress to 2024 when he doesn't run again. But my hope is that the Democratic Party looks more like AOC. Yeah, AOC or like the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders wing of the party because when you look at young people in this country, that is a message that resonates and at the end of the day like it's also one that resonates with disaffected voters um so the democratic party should not be the party of like nancy pelosi and chuck schumer and joe biden in like four years or five years there has to be a generational transition um because right now there's a misalignment between the voters and the party. Yeah, I agree. I, I something that I, I talk about quite often with my dad is how as much as I respect Nancy Pelosi, I think her time is up. I think yeah. that there needs to be space for new and uh, fresh. fresh, just yeah, like a fresh perspective. And also the, the Republicans are not playing by the rules. They're playing extremely dirty. Um, I heard this somewhere and it really resonated, but like you can't bring a feather to a sword fight. And that's exactly what I feel like she's been leading the Democratic Party to do. So is she, do you, like, is she up for re-election as well? Does she get nominated again as the speaker? Yeah, so she she will have to run again to be speaker of the okay. Um, You know, she, I agree with you. I think she's like, past her time is her time is up she's done a lot of like amazing things yeah um and broken a lot of boundaries especially as like 
the first woman to be speaker of the house. Um, but that being said, her and the rest and a lot of other people in the Democratic Party that are of a similar demographic are the system that voters voted to blow up in 2016, right? Like they are, they are represent, a representation of the days in which Democrats and Republicans were actually very similar. And people don't want that. Like people clearly want another option. Yeah. So she is up for uh, a vote in 2020 if joe biden wins um but it will be interesting to see how many votes she actually gets yeah but yeah just one more thing on that also primaries are a really important part of of like what the future of the democratic party should be yeah yeah Um, i I almost wish that we i was i was talking about this with my family yesterday because we were talking about texas and how Texas is now a swing state and um, how they've reached, uh, this was like by Thursday or Friday, but they had reached 100% of their total state turnout in 2016, which is huge. And so I was saying how I wish, the conversation ended up going to like primary elections and how I wish we had that in Canada because we don't get to pick who our leader is. Like we don't really have much of a say, but I, I feel like that would really push people I, I think that would push people to vote more or like increase our voter turnout because they have a say in who leads yeah. our country versus like, I think Trini back in, I don't know, when Justin Trudeau first ran, yeah. mm-hmm. um, people were hesitant to vote for the conservative party because they didn't want Stephen Harper again. Yeah. And I think that was actually a big part of why he won because it was sort of anything like the slogan that was going around was anything but conservative. And yeah. unfortunately, um, the NDP party never wins. And so it yeah. was... And I think, um, yeah, I think it's like uh, similar to the way that it is in the States where I don't necessarily think that um, the Liberal Party in Canada is reflective of maybe how people are mobilizing now in terms of being liberal or what that sort of means, but it is what it is right now. But I, I, but it should no longer stay like this. Like it should evolve. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, it's something that we talked about before, but the NDP party is where it like the that's that's where like real I think liberal social change lies but it's it's I want to say it's a stepping block and I hope that it's a stepping block that we're taking in order to get there but obviously you just you just never know yeah I remember Tarini do you remember on election day it was literally like the day of and I texted you being like listen, I know we were talking about strategic voting, but I am really struggling and I think I'm going yeah. to vote NDP. Then you sent me this um, this website, which said you like input your address and it says what yeah. your strategic vote would be. Yeah. I think people had a really big problem with strategic voting because they're like, yeah, but like if people who, you know, if, if everybody strategically votes for liberal, but if you just use all of those votes to vote for like NDP, then NDP yes. was power. And like, yes, like I want to be there and like, I want to believe it. And like, I obviously hope that that happens, but I, it's just, it wasn't happening and too risky. It's, it's too risky because the, the sort of flip side of that is that it would have been conservative party in power. And, you know, in, um, the province that we live in, Nadine, there is actually a conservative leader and the, his handling of the coronavirus actually has been praised as well first of all that he's done a good job but also that um it's taken a more liberal approach than 
you know, than you would think conser- considering that he's conservative. Um, and I think it's great that people are, that people sort of have that power because it really was due to people critiquing what he was doing and, um, you know, protesting and bring it to their authority, like their level of power, wherever they could, um, that he was, that he did handle it in the more liberal way than he otherwise would have. Yeah. But I think it's important to not forget that it is because of his conservative policy to begin with that the coronavirus was where it was when he had to step in and put in more quote unquote liberal policies. So like he was the one who cut, you know, how many sick days you can have. He was the one who just put all of these changes in motion that accelerated what, how coronavirus would have happened. And when he stepped in and sort of put back those liberal policies in place, I think people really like applaud him for it. Um, But it's like, he was the one who sort of created those problems to begin with. And I think that's something that is maybe similar in the States that, you know, I think maybe people forget who created the problems to begin with. And then when people come in and put corrective measures, it's you really praise them or try to try to give them credit where it's not really due because what has happened is a result of their lack of taking action to begin with. And I mean, yeah. I don't really know if you can say that for Trump and certainly not for the coronavirus because I think he's still not doing anything and he didn't do anything. So this doesn't really apply for that situation. Um but, and I hope that if there's anything good that comes out of it, it's that people really realize the importance of having like social infrastructure and, and having strong support of social infrastructure, um, because it really would have slowed, I want to say the, like how bad coronavirus got or the pandemic got, especially in the States. I think you, you said something I think, which I thought was really interesting about how, um, despite being a conservative, he took a liberal approach. And it made me think about how Trump marketed himself this entire time as not a politician, yet his entire presidency has led to a division within the United States among the political system that has never been seen before. And every single thing that he does or lack of doesn't do, um, he politicizes it. So I remember uh, he held off passing a stimulus plan within Congress because most of it was going to quote democratic states who didn't vote for him. And so when he uses the messaging of I'm not a politician, but then spews this idea of like political divide, I just find it so ironic and why we can't just, yes, Ford, who is our state's for like, or province, essentially, um, who's our leader, um, was able to, was at the end of the day, able to put the well-being of his constituents over whatever political side he, he sides on. Yeah, he sides with, exactly. It's just crazy to me. It is. And it also goes to show like the lack of the lack of like this person who was in a power in a position of power literally there to help the people of America like is not doing that and like takes all of these other things into um into consideration that are political or that are like business or like financially driven to like to help him like that are that are beneficial to him versus yeah. actually taking any sort of action that helps the people that he's supposed to serve 
hundred percent. That's kind of like his whole his whole thing is is transactional, right? And yeah. he is a he is the definition of a like it's like big man politics where he is demanding patronage from governors. He is demanding patronage right. from citizens. He is demanding patronage from local officials. And it's really he himself is like a sinkhole of corruption. Um, the Chinese government is gri giving his daughter uh, trademarks left, right, and center. Um, his hotels are um, all across the world. His hotels are basically being used as stops for the United States military. This guy is basically grifting his way through four years. And when it comes to like the choice before, you know, you can, people can say whatever they want about, about Joe Biden, right? Like people can say he's a politician. He's been around for too long, et cetera, et cetera. One thing Joe Biden is, is a fundamentally good man. Yeah. He, he's a, a very grounded human being who has suffered so much in his life and has tried, has spent almost his entire political career trying to understand what everyday suffering looks like with people uh, from people who have less than him. Donald Trump is the complete opposite. He is everything that is wrong with um, like corporate culture. He is the embodiment of that. He is the embodiment of like big business politics. And, and he, he has no regard, you know, he refused to send like I was in New York during the height of the coronavirus and I live between two hospitals. And in March, you would just see streams of ambulances, like drunk, leaving people in there. They built a morgue outside one of the hospitals. And during that time, he refused to send ventilators to New York state because he didn't like that the governor was calling him out for it. So like when people say this election is a question of life and death, it is a question of life and death. Like people are going to like, until that man is gone, he will be the proximate cause of people's death. So who do you guys think is going to win the election? The million dollar question. I, <laughs> that was good. Um, I, I'm hesitant to give an answer just because we're not, we're in the middle of, 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 we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic that we've never seen before in our lifetime. And so what voter turnout is going to look like on election day could honestly either be completely in the favor of the Democratic Party or completely yeah. against it. We know that six out of 10 of Joe Biden supporters voted by mail or were most likely to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. And six out of 10 Trump supporters are most likely going to be voting in person on election day. So it really could swing any way. But what I will say and what I have been telling people is that I do think that we have, I say we, like I live in the States, but I've become so ingrained in this process. I'm I'm pretty much like applying for my green card as we speak. Um, I do think that they have a chance. And the reason I think that they have a chance is because we're seeing a historic shift in states that were so deeply red in the past that are now 
starting to see more Democratic parties run within those states than ever before. And I'm, I'm really thinking about Texas. Like, it is so interesting to me how I think I, I like read this stat that they've been a Republican state since 1964. And so this is the first time where that's really being challenged. And I think it is in those states where um, we are seeing an increase in Democratic candidates that will end up helping us in the long run. So IDK, TBD. In conclusion. In conclusion. I mean, I have I have an answer. It's just like, I don't, I don't want to, I feel weird saying it out loud, but I'm going to say I, Joe Biden is going to win the election. And I'm, I'm not saying that because I know, or because I have any, like, I'm, so sure. yeah. I'm like going to speak it into existence. Joe Biden is going to win the election. Um, I hope, please, God, please, if you're Hi, listening. Hi, God. Uh, <laughs> it's us. It's us. But, One more thing, real quick. But uh, yeah, I think, it, I think Joe Biden can win this. Um, but and, I, and the reason I'm saying that is because the sheer energy around the country is electric. Like it is, people are ready and people are ready to have their voices heard. And as Nadine was saying, like, I strongly believe, and I've thought this since 2018 when Beto ran against Ted Cruz, Texas is the key. And um, if we flip Texas, we don't even have to worry about what may or may not happen um and trump currently is on the back if you if you are somebody that looks at the polls and believes the polls and takes them at face value trump is on the back foot in deep red states and um you know that means whatever it means but hopefully it means that joe biden is gonna win um but i do think that we all have to be prepared that trump isn't going to concede yep that's what i'm they are going to do, the Republican Party is going to do everything that they possibly can to get every single, to take every single state um, to court on this, to like subvert the will of the people in a lot of those swing states, whether it's, you're already seeing it in Pennsylvania, you're already seeing it in Texas, you're already seeing it in Florida. Um, but everybody should know that if we vote in large enough numbers, they can knock off 10,000 votes. It won't matter. Yep. It will never get to the Supreme Court. So with that, I'm going to say, save us, Joe. <laughs>